My name's Lachlan, one of the pastors here at UniChurch. Uh, I'm excited, not just because I'm at church, because it's Daylight Savings. Happy Daylight Savings to everyone. Uh, I know, it's so good, right? Like, life just gets better during Daylight Savings. I love it. Uh, it used to be great where I grew up, because I grew up near the surf, and so you'd be able to finish work at five o'clock. And in Daylight Savings time, you still had three hours to go for a surf after work. So good. Sadly, not the case in Auckland. But, you know, sacrifices we make, it's worth it. Um, I, I do like Daylight Savings. I... I think it is part of the good life, enjoying sunshine, enjoying daylight. Uh, And like every sane person, I want the good life. I trust that's part of why you guys are at uni, perhaps, or working young in your life. You do those things because you think somehow they will contribute to you having a rich life, an abundant life, a fulfilled life. I don't think there's many people that go, no, actually my aim in life is to have a terrible life to have a barren life, a life with lots of lacking and want. That's not what we aim for. We, we want the good life. Everyone wants that abundant life, a satisfying life. Different generations have had different views of what makes the good life. A previous generation thought that it came from having the best stuff, you know, the nicest car, the biggest house, the best kitchen renovation. People pursued those things, thinking that it was the best toys that gave you the good life. I think our generation has kind of shifted a little bit. We think the good life comes from cataloguing the best list of experiences, having the most exotic travel destinations that we've been to, or having the biggest adrenaline rush. That's what we think is the good life. Across the board, it seems relationships have been seen as key to the good life, good relationships with friends, with family, perhaps a good marriage, perhaps some kids that you get on well with relationships have been, see, been seen to be key to the good life. But I think there's something that we don't often think about connected with the good life. Test it out. I don't think we often connect giving with the good life. We don't often think, okay, if I want an abundant life, well, I better give money away. Picture a guy named Bruce. Any Bruce's amongst us tonight? Tried to find a name that no one had. I had Bob this morning, but Bob's here tonight, so I don't want to do that. Picture Bruce, right? Bruce, he's been working all his life. He's getting towards retirement. His friend comes to him and says, oh, Bruce, you must be pretty excited. You know, you've been working so hard. Retirement around the corner. Bruce says to him, oh, I'm so excited. I'm ready to just put my feet up and think about all the ways I can give my money away. We just don't think like that. That's not what retirement's for. That's not what we're sold on the brochure of working hard for time to then retire earlier. I saw an article this week of someone aiming to retire at 50 they can get all those years of their life to have the good life. And they're not thinking about giving their money away. We don't put those things together. But the passage that Emma's just read for us there in 2 Corinthians 9, it's full of language of richness. Hear all the language of abundance throughout that reading. We had reaping generously, overflowing, excelling, multiply, increase, being enriched. God's holding before us tonight the good life, the rich life. What he's saying is if you want a life that is overflowing and abundant, then give. God's word for us tonight is that the rich life comes from giving generously. It's counterintuitive to our ears. I don't need to hang on to my stuff if I want the abundant life. If I give it away, it's gone, right? No, wrong. The rich life comes from generous giving, 
Because, and here's our main point for tonight. Here's the big idea. Get this into your head. This is what I want you to walk away with. God loves cheerful givers. God loves cheerful givers and grows for them righteousness and relationships. That's the main idea. That's what we're driving at tonight. That's what Paul and God is teaching us through this passage. God loves cheerful givers and grows for them righteousness and relationships. With God in the picture, the rich life does come from generous giving. Now, it may not be the materially rich life, we'll see that. It may not be the life full of worldly experiences, but it is the truly rich life. Rich with God, a life that is deeply satisfied, a life that abounds in good works and good relationships, a life full of thankfulness. I want a life like that, and I hope you do too. Pick up this idea with me in chapter 9, verse 7. Do keep your Bible open there tonight so you can follow along as we work through this passage. See the logic there yourself. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each person should do as he's decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. There you go. There's our point in the passage. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, let me remind you briefly of the context into which this passage is coming. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter here to a group of Christians in Corinth, the church in kind of southern Greece. Uh, he's writing to them because he's on his way to them to collect some money that he's going to take to other Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, Paul had spent some time with this church in Corinth a while back. He spent 18 months kind of seeing the first people become Christian there and then growing the church. He's got a connection with them. And Paul's going around to all of these non-Jewish churches that he's connected to, collecting money from them to take down to Jerusalem for the Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, Why do they need money in Jerusalem? Well, there's a big famine going on there. The Christians there, they need food. They need support to keep living. And so Paul's on his way through. In chapter 8, if you read the bit between last week and what we read tonight, there's a chunk where Paul says he's sending three men before him, Titus and two other Christians. They're going to go to Corinth and help Corinth get ready the money for Paul to come and collect. Uh, This wasn't a new thing that Corinth was finding out about. They already knew about the need in Jerusalem and they'd been setting aside money, or they should have been setting aside money for about a year already. So that's the context into which this passage comes. I'll let you know that because it's important to know there's a particular situation into which God's Word is written here. This passage is talking about a particular appeal for Christians to give to other Christians who are in poverty at that time. What that means is that this passage isn't going to answer all our questions about giving. This isn't the full extent of the Bible's teaching on giving. There's much more to be said, much more questions to ask and think through together. Uh, But this will just give us one piece of that puzzle, one piece of the Bible's teaching on giving. And although it's speaking to a particular context, there's much throughout this passage where Paul's tone shifts and he speaks in terms that are true beyond any specific context. Uh, Verse 7, you see both the specific and the general. Have a look. Uh, At the start, each person should do as he's decided in his own heart. That's Paul talking to the Corinthians about the specific appeal that he's collecting for. But then he goes on to give the reason why they should give as they've decided, because God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that's a general truth. That's not only true for the Corinthians in this appeal. This is something that's always true. God always loves a cheerful giver. When I first read this passage, and I first read that God loves a cheerful giver, uh, 
I thought it just meant that God enjoys or approves of a cheerful giver. You know how we use love in a couple of ways in English language? Uh, if I say I love donuts, that'd be a true statement. I do love donuts. I particularly love them with coffee. Just brilliant combo. I love donuts, but that's different to me saying I love my friends or I love my wife. Yeah? If I said those two things in the same way, that would be a bit weird. When, when I say I love donuts, I say I approve of donuts. They please me greatly. I enjoy them. When I say I love my friends or my wife, well, there should still be some pleasure and enjoyment there, yes, but it's an active love. I love my friends, I love my wife by giving them my time, by listening to them, by serving them. In this passage, when it says God loves cheerful givers, he doesn't just approve of them, he doesn't just enjoy them, saying he actively loves them. He blesses cheerful givers. He gives them the rich life. That's what the rest of this passage fills out for us. Paul shows us the great harvest that God grows, that God gives to cheerful givers. So verse 8 goes on. And God is able to make every grace overflow. That is God's love for the cheerful giver. We're going to unpack four blessings tonight, four kind of returns on our investment of cheerful generosity. My prayer throughout the week has been that tonight, as we hear from God's word, we'd all walk away with either a newfound joy in generosity or a renewed joy in generosity. It might be tonight that you're not living a generous life. And as you hear God's word, you kind of awaken this joy within you that goes, I want to be generous now. Or perhaps you have been generous and this passage tonight, these truths tonight, will just reawaken that joy in you, remind you that it is the right thing to be doing, to be generous. It might be easy to just take verse 7 and kind of conclude something different, to go, oh well, I'm, I'm not generous, I'm not cheerful in my generosity, so I should just stop giving, you know? I actually really hate giving, sacrifice, it means I can't eat as many donuts as I want to, so I'm going to stop giving. No, that would be the wrong way to take this passage tonight. Instead, the truths around verse 7 there, they're meant to inspire in us a cheerfulness. God's promise to love and reward our generosity should make us all the more generous. Whether our giving be directed towards freeing up local church leaders or sending missionaries across the globe with the gospel or providing for the needs of the poor. Those were the three areas of Christian giving that we saw last week. So God loves cheerful givers and Paul couches all this talk. He sets it up in verse 6 with another general principle. Have a look at chapter 9 verse 6. Remember this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. So we've got this general principle, a proverb really, drawn from the world of farming. Who's been to a farm before? Show of hands. Okay, that looks like the majority. That's good. Farms are fun. I think there's a bit of a difference between, say, an animal farm, like a, a dairy farm or a sheep farm, and a crop farm, maybe a wheat farm or a rice paddy, something like that. Paul's particularly thinking of those crop farms where you're sowing seed into the ground. The farmer, when he comes to sowing his seed, there's a bit of risk involved there. It's an investment. The farmer has a limited amount of seed that he's had to pay for. It's kind of money or, or capital at that time, he has to decide how much am I going to pay for, how much am I going to put into the ground. And there's a proportionality. If the farmer kind of holds back in his sowing, 
if he's restrained in how much seed he puts in the ground, that's what sparingly means in that verse, holding back, being restrained. If a farmer sows sparingly, then come harvest time, he's not going to have that many crops. If there's only, say, five seeds in the ground, he can only grow five plants. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. Whereas if a farmer sows generously and kind of puts as much seed into the ground as he can, come harvest time, he's going to have a generous harvest. Do you get the principle there? I think it's pretty simple. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. So generously, you reap generously. You reap what you sow. It makes me think always of the Nutrigrain slogan. If you guys had that one over here, you only get out what you put in. Uh, they're saying if you eat Nutrigrain, you have all this energy because you can only use the energy that you've put into your body. It's that same kind of idea. You only get out what you put in. And Paul says this general principle applies in the area of Christian giving. He says our giving is like planting seeds in the ground. If you hold back on your giving, then you're not going to get much in return. Whereas if you give generously, then you'll get a generous return. And you'll get that generous return because God loves cheerful givers, actively loves them, rewards them, blesses them. So let's see these four blessings, these four rewards that God offers for our cheerful giving. They're in the outline. If you've got an outline on the way, and you might like to take some notes there, help you follow along. The first blessing, the first reward that God offers for our cheerful giving, when we give, God provides for our needs. Have a look at verse 8. God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Man, it's rich language, isn't it? We're going to pick up more of this verse a bit later on. But notice in the middle there, one of the results that comes from God's overflowing grace in our giving is that we always have everything we need. We always have everything we need. At our best as Christians, this can be one of the things that stops us from giving. We're worried that if we're generous, then maybe we won't have everything that we need. Now, I say that's when we're at our best because often we're nowhere near being reduced down to the level of need, are we? I've got up on screen for you a verse from another of Paul's letters, 1 Timothy 6. I just want to help us remember tonight what our needs actually are. Have a look at 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 to 8. But godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content. When we're not at our best, which I suspect is mo- it's most of the time for me, so I suspect it's most of the time for you, we think our wants are our needs. By comparing ourselves with wealthy society around us, we think we need all sorts of things. We think we need the latest iPhone XS. I think they finally appropriately named it. It's something that's excessive. (laughs) Perhaps instead it's the Samsung Galaxy S10 that's about to drop. But we think we need that. We need the new pair of shoes to match this particular handbag that I can't use at the moment because this doesn't match my outfit. We need that new computer game that's come out because it's going to fulfill me. We need coffee or wine or energy drinks. We need a car. We need that new book. I don't know what your particular poison is, but 
Can we work hard to stop kidding ourselves that our wants are our needs? We don't need all those nice things that we want. We, we might well enjoy some of those things. They are gifts from God to be received with thanksgiving, but they're not things we need. If it came down to it, we could do just fine without them. Food and clothing, I suspect shelter comes under that heading of clothing. Those are the things we need. Even within those needs, we may not need them in the quality or the quantity that we often enjoy them. I'm sure we could get by with less clothing and less food than we all currently enjoy. I got the opportunity to spend some time with my nieces recently and I pictured a moment with one of them as I was thinking through this idea. Uh, I've got four nieces, four girls, they're beautiful, gorgeous, one of them six years old. Uh, We were out for lunch and she needed a kinder surprise. Yeah? She said to mum and dad, no, but I need it! We rightly laugh at that, don't we? Because she doesn't need that. And yet how often are we the same? How often are we like a six-year-old girl saying that we need something that we just want? That we need something that is an excess in our life? Food and clothing. With this, we'll be content. We don't need the latest tech, the new dress, or the, the expensive OE. Those aren't things we need. So as we hear this promise, when we give, God is able to provide for all our needs. Yeah, he can do that. And not many of us are at risk of dropping below that level of need. This is our first one for tonight. When we give, God can provide for our needs. Secondly, though, when we give, God does provide more than we need. When we give, God provides more than we need. Have a look at verse 10. Now, the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now, Paul here is continuing with this language of farming, saying God is the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food. And this providing God, this sustaining God, Paul says, will provide and multiply your seed. Now, remember, if you're a farmer, then your seed is like your capital. That's uh, that's your income. If you have a multiplication of seed, that's a big windfall for you. If you have a multiplied seed, you can plant more, you'll harvest more, you'll be able to sell more as well as eating for yourself. So I take it as we read this, uh, this is God providing and multiplying our income. When you give, God gives back. The language of multiplying suggests that God's providing more than we need. If it's already said that he can provide our needs and now it's saying he's multiplying our seed, then God provides more than we need. And for most of us in the room, we're already in this position. God has provided more than we need. We're not even close to the point where our giving is so generous that it seems unlikely our needs will be met. But there might be some other people in this room. There might be some of you in this room who aren't able to give at the moment, aren't able to meet your needs because you haven't gone and gotten a job. Uh, For some of you as uni students, it might well be that tonight you actually just need to go, yeah, I should probably generate some income. I should stop living at home and sponging off my parents. Uh, It's time to get out there, take some responsibility and earn income while I'm studying to be able to be generous to others. That might be some of you in the room that you need to hear tonight. For others in the room, there's no doubt someone here who's doing their hardest to find income, doing all that they can to generate some income, but your income level is low and you're worried that to give anything will mean that you won't survive. I'm sure there's someone in the room for whom that is the case. And I want you to hear tonight that God is good. 
He is the one who provides. He has ways of providing that go beyond our rational expectations. This church is one of those ways. Uh, Although our world is so strong on working towards financial independence, God's model is actually for financial interdependence. That when someone is in need amongst us, the rest of the body can get around and support them. As long as they're doing everything they can to be generating that income, there are times in life where due to ill health or some other cause, a person isn't able to get income. And the rest of the body around us can gather and support them through that time. So if you are in need here tonight, we would love to hear from you. We don't want you to be going without food and clothing. Those are things that you need, and if you aren't able to have those two things at the moment, we'd love to help you with that. Don't go into debt in order to give, but remember the Macedonians that we heard of last week. They gave out of their deep poverty. And so even if your income level is low, if you have all that you need, then give generously and God will provide. I doubt I even need to say that though, because generally as we look across the world, it's those that have the least that tend to be the most generous. And those that are the richest that tend to cling on to what they have. I don't know if you know that, but it's as you have less that you see the needs of others and you more readily part with what little you have than when you're rich, you can kind of fall into looking down on those that have less, thinking it's their fault, and so not parting with the things that you have. This passage encourages all of us tonight, whatever your income level, whatever your asset level, whatever your wealth, when you give, God gives back. Now, let's name the elephant in the room. Some of you at this point are like, man, Lachlan, uh, Rowan's gone away and Lachlan's just gone all prosperity preacher on us. Yeah, some of you thinking that? It's not what's happened, okay? The prosperity gospel is terrible and I'll explain what it is and why it's terrible in a second. But like all false teaching, which is what the prosperity gospel is, like all false teaching, it takes a truth from the Bible and adds something to it or takes away from it or just slightly distorts it. And we need to watch that when we rightly reject the prosperity gospel, we don't also throw out the truth of scripture that is being picked up on in that teaching. And so in 2 Corinthians 9, what we're seeing tonight is that when we give, God provides for our needs. That's what it says. When we give, God provides more than we need. God is wonderfully generous and he wants us not to be worrying about money, but to feel secure in him for our present and future money. The problem is there are some pastors who stop here. They focus just on the material benefits that come from generosity and they teach you that God's desire for you is to prosper. They teach that God doesn't want you to just be scraping by with your needs met, but that he actually wants you to be wealthy, that God wants you to have the nice car and the big house and to go on the world tour holidays. That's what we call the prosperity gospel. Uh, prosperity gospel because gospel means good news and such preachers such teachers will tell you that the good news of christianity is that if you come to god you will be wealthy they turn that into the message of christianity but friends that is just christianized materialism it's the spirit of our age being baptized and called something that it's not it's taking the wealthy west and the greed of the wealthy west and kind of baptizing that as a christian thing It takes something that's secondary, a secondary promise, and makes it a primary primary and foundational truth. See, 2 Corinthians 9 is saying that God will reward the cheerful giver. But the two rewards that we've seen so far, the reward of having our needs met and having more than we need, 
They're secondary. The primary reward is the next one. Number three, when we give, God increases our righteousness. When we give, God grows our righteous character. This is primary. The other things that are leading towards and helping see this happen. Have a look at verse 10 again. Now, the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now, righteousness, just a quick definition for you. Righteousness is character that is right in God's sight. And what we see here is that God is far more concerned that we be righteous than that we be wealthy. God is far more concerned that we have an abundance of good works than an abundance of money. And when God provides for our needs, when he provides more than we need, he does so for a purpose. Come back again to verse 8. See if you can pick up the flow of logic and the purpose for God's provision. Verse 8. God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. See the logic? Pick up the so that in there. Worth looking out for that little phrase when you're reading the Bible. So that introduces the purpose, the reason for something happening. The purpose of God's generosity toward us, the purpose of his provision for us, is that we may excel in every good work. There's a particular good work on view in this context. Paul fills that out in verse 9. He quotes there from Psalm 112 that Emma read for us earlier. That whole psalm is describing for us the person who fears the Lord, the person who is living the righteous life, living out a way that is right before God. And part of their right behavior that Paul quotes here is that they give freely to the poor. They never hold back when they see someone in need. Uh, This is something that God consistently expects from Israel in the Old Testament, consistently part of that righteous character that God desires. If you're familiar with the book of Job, if you're not familiar with it, it's a good book to read. It's long, but it gives you a good sense of why things are the way they are in the world. Uh, Job is going through some suffering and he's trying to defend his righteousness to his friends. He's trying to defend his righteous character. And he says to his friends as part of that defense that he always rescued the poor and the fatherless. That he always, if they had a need, he was providing for them. That the widows rejoiced in him because he provided for them. And not only did Job provide for them, he actually actively sought out the people who were acting unjustly, those who were keeping poor people in their poverty. Job was a righteous man who looked after the poor. Or if you're a female and you're at the refresh weekend last weekend, you would have met Boaz, who's commended by God for looking after Ruth and Naomi in their poverty. So they came back from famine, came back to a land, they had nothing Boaz provided. Well, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, consistent theme amongst the prophets is they rebuke Israel for failing to provide for the poor. Isaiah 5 rebukes those who have added house to house. They've built up their property portfolio. All the while their neighbors are suffering and in poverty and not having the food that they need. And that's not just a thread in the Old Testament, not just the Old Testament that commends looking after the poor The same thing comes through into this passage, into the Gospels, 1 Timothy, James, that we're going to look at next term. Generosity to the poor 
is a key aspect to righteous character. And so, what's going on in this passage, as we give, God increases our righteousness. As we give, God is growing our godly character. He takes our first small step of generosity and then gives us an opportunity to continue to, ge- to be generous. He grows us to be more and more generous. As we sow generosity, we reap generosity. And friends, we've all got room to grow in generosity, don't we? It's not like any of us can look at our life and go, no, I've kind of hit 100%. I'm as generous as I can be. Uh, now, the standard for our generosity, Paul gave us back in chapter 8, that verse that Deb read for us in between those songs there. Christ is our measure of generosity. Christ, who was so rich, but became poor, so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Our God is a generous God. And as he grows us by his spirit into his image, generosity is one aspect of that growth. God is far more concerned with our generosity than with our money. He wants our heart, not our stuff. To make sure we got the point, Paul uh, gives us this logic again in verse 11. Have a look there. You'll be enriched in every way. Why? For all generosity. God enriches us for a purpose that we would be generous. As you look at the money that you currently have, we need to remind ourselves this is not money that God wants to sit just with us. God hasn't enriched us so that we might store it up and hoard it and live the wealthy life. God has enriched us for generosity. We're pipelines for God's money. A pipe, when things get clogged up in it, that's not good. It's not functioning well. The stuff that's clogged starts to smell. We are pipelines for God's money. He's given it to us so that we would be generous to others. Friends, the prosperity gospel is tragically wrong. It leaves people spiritually poor and gives them permission for their greed and takes their eyes off heaven. When we give, God provides for our needs. He provides more than we need, but more importantly than both of those. He increases our righteous character. That's our first three rewards that God gives us, and there's still more. I kind of feel like the TV infomercial guy at this point, but wait, there's more? It's free steak knives for you? It's not, no, no steak knives. It's not one of God's rewards. The fourth reward, though, when we give, God deepens our relationships. Have a look at verse 14. Here Paul is talking about the response that the Jerusalem Christians will have towards the Corinthian Christians when they receive the gift. Verse 14. And they will have deep affection for you in their prayers on your behalf because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Uh, Those who receive the Corinthian generosity will respond with deep affection. They're not going to be unchanged or unmoved. They won't feel entitled. They'll respond with deep affection and with prayer for the Corinthians. If you were there a few weeks ago when we had Tear Fund visit and Dan Bremner's doing his concert, you would have seen a video of a girl who had been sponsored as a child by an elderly couple in America, sponsored for many years of her life, uh, helped with the basic necessities of food and clothing. Uh, And we saw in that video, once she'd reached about her 20s, she was in America on a speaking tour, uh, and she got the chance to meet this elderly couple who had been providing for her, giving generously to her for all those years. Uh, It was a beautiful video, 
thanks to this couple's generosity, she was able to come to know Christ. She was able to get an education and get to university so that she can now earn an income and provide for others. When she saw this couple that had given so much to her, there was a palpable excitement. I mean, she was jumping up and down on the stage, if you remember the video. Uh, She was crying tears of joy. I'm sure that didn't just start for her when she saw them face to face. That deep affection that she had towards them would have sat with her for all of those years. I'm sure that just as they were praying for her, so she was praying for them, enjoying and rejoicing in God for all their generosity towards her. Giving always deepens your relationship with those you give towards. Whether your giving is to the local church or to global mission or giving to support the poor, in all those cases, you're actually partnering with people. You're partnering with people who have a deep affection for you and pray for you. Four rewards that come from our giving. God provides for our needs, provides more than we need, grows us in our righteous character, and deepens our relationships. I hope you can see as you think through those four rewards, God really does love cheerful givers. He doesn't just approve of them, he actively loves them, blesses them, rewards them. Having said all that, there's one final kind of separate result that comes from cheerful giving. It's separate in that it's not a result that comes directly to the person who's given. Uh, it's a It is, though, the result of generosity that dominates verse 11 to 15. It's this. Cheerful generosity glorifies God. Cheerful generosity glorifies God. Pick it up with me from verse 11. You'll be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many acts of thanksgiving to God. They will glorify God for your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with others through the proof provided by this service. And they'll have deep affection for you in their prayers on your behalf because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Friends, as you give, people are thanking God. As you give, people are glorifying God. They're thanking God because they recognize that your money is actually God's money. That through your generosity, it is God who has provided for their needs. You don't actually get the credit for your giving. God does. And that's right because your generosity is the work of God in you by his spirit. This is important to grasp tonight, especially if you're here tonight and you're not someone who calls yourself a Christian yet. I want you to hear very clearly tonight that giving does not make you a Christian. God doesn't have kind of this to-do list of things that you have to do if he's going to let you into heaven, okay? That's often what people think. You've got to come to church. You've got to give away some money. You've got to be kind. And then if you do all those things, God might perhaps let you into heaven. That's not the good news of Christianity. The good news of Christianity is that God offers us salvation as a free gift, That through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection back to new life, all our sin, all our wrongdoing can be forgiven and we can freely receive entry into an eternity with God. God offers us salvation as a free gift. Your giving will not make you a Christian. Having heard that, your generosity as a Christian is also something that God gives as a free gift. 
See the language of the passage? Your generosity is the grace of God in you. That's why people are thanking God when you're generous. Because they recognize this isn't something that's just coming from you. It's not like you've summoned the human willpower to be generous. God has grown that in you. He's grown your righteous character that you would be generous. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, hey? On Monday night, if you were there at our AGM and Actually, I know that most of you weren't there because I was there, and I don't know, maybe you were doing important university work. You missed out on a great night. Uh, you should come along next year. It's the absolutely gangbuster meeting. It really was. Uh, we had a great night on Monday thanking God and glorifying God for the work that he's been doing amongst us. We saw our budget. We operated as a church on a $650,000 budget last year. It was wonderful to give thanks to God for all of that generosity of the people that call Uni Church and EV Church home. We thank God, we glorify God for that generosity. And through those funds that people are giving, other people are becoming Christian. It's fantastic, people being saved from hell into heaven. We saw on Monday night, it's been 19 people across this past year have turned to Christ for salvation. That's fantastic. We glorify God for his work amongst us. Through the generosity of you guys, through the generosity of of us as a church, people are growing to become more like Christ. People are growing in that righteous character. And people are being trained up and sent out as workers into God's harvest. All of this is God's work. It's not my work as a pastor. I can't take any credit for that. It's God's work amongst us. We thank God. We glorify God for you who are giving generously towards the work of God's kingdom amongst us. Again, this is where the prosperity gospel goes dreadfully wrong and borders on blasphemy. I hope that's not too strong for you tonight. I know it could be offensive to like critique people in our culture, but the prosperity gospel goes dreadfully wrong and borders on blasphemy. In certain quarters, you'll hear it taught that God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to have the big house and the nice car because then others will look on into your life, they'll see your good life, and then they'll want to become Christian. You'll hear it taught that if you have the fancy clothes, if you're living in the mansion, people will want to become Christian. They'll glorify God because they'll see the good life that you're living. No, friends, it's not our wealth that leads people to glorify God. It's our generosity. Don't be fooled. Don't twist the scriptures and come up with an excuse for materialism. It's cheerful generosity that leads to the glory of God. I'm already three minutes over, so look, I wanted to pick up some other things from chapter 8 tonight, but we've, we've seen the dominant threads. You'll see in the outline another point that I wanted to make there, uh, referencing back to that chunk in chapter 8. I did want to point out that Paul was concerned, 8 verse 21, about managing this money in a transparent way. He was concerned about doing things right before God and before other people. And that is our practice as a church as well, in our money management and money handling We try to avoid anything that could give any hint of the pastor's embezzling church funds, yeah? So at the AGM, we release our budget that's totally transparent. That includes uh, the figures of the living allowances that are given to each pastor. Rowan mentioned this last week, but I'll reiterate tonight. Any more that you give to church doesn't come to us as pastors. Our living allowance is set. Any increase in that giving goes to freeing up more gospel workers for the harvest, goes to sending more missionaries overseas or providing more for the poor in our midst. 
but we try to do things as transparently as we can. We're getting our accounts reviewed at the moment to keep helping with that. If you've got any questions about our money management as a church, do come and talk to me. But there's a helpful principle there from 8 verse 21 that amongst the church, money management should be transparent and should be in a way that doesn't give any hint that pastors are doing dodgy things with the money. But let's end tonight where we started, 9 verse 7. Come back to that verse. Each person should do as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Friends, plan to give. Decide in your heart how you want to manage God's money that he's entrusted to you. Don't just give what you have left over. I'm actually really glad that we don't pass the bag around church because it means we can't just get away with like seeing what's in our pocket, the little change that, that's left over and putting that in. We don't have an opportunity to get away with that. If it's not already your regular practice, can I encourage you to put some time in your calendar? Actually, some of you might not have calendars. You should get a calendar, put some time into your calendar to sit down and think, how will you manage your money? How much do you want to give towards the local church, towards global mission, towards supporting the poor? And as you make that decision, as you look at your income that's coming in and your planning might be, hang on, I should go and get a job so that I've got some income to be able to be generous with. At whatever stage you're at, as you plan your giving, remember what we've seen tonight. The rich life comes from giving richly. The fulfilled life, the satisfying life, the abundant life comes from giving. If you want the barren life, the life that's lacking, the life that sucks, well, just keep all your money to yourself. That'll give you the barren life. But if you want the good life, give generously. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. But if you sow generously, you will reap generously because God loves cheerful givers. God loves cheerful givers. He's able to provide for you to increase your righteous character, to deepen your relationships. I don't know, why would you not want to be generous? As our Lord Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Let me pray. Father, we praise you tonight as our provider. You are the one that provides seed for the sower and bread for food. The breakfast that we've eaten this morning, the lunch that we've eaten, that's your gift to us. We don't take those things for granted. You provide. You provide our income. You provide the energy we use to earn that income. Father, thank you. Thank you for your generous provision. And thank you for giving us the opportunity to be generous. Thank you for growing us to be more and more like you. That we too can give generously towards the growth of your kingdom and the needs of those amongst us. Father, we pray that you would take our silver and our gold, that we would withhold nothing from you. I mean, it's all yours to begin with. So really, we're just giving it back towards your purposes. Grow us in our generosity. Help us not to believe the lies of society around us, that we need more stuff, that we need better experiences, that we need those travel destinations ticked off our list. Whatever it be for us, save us from those lies of society. And instill in us the great truth that you've been teaching us tonight, that you love cheerful givers, that you reward and bless those who give generously. Father, thank you so much for your gift in Christ, the one who, though he was rich, became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might 
become rich. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Friends, we're going to respond to God's word by standing and fixing our eyes on God who has given us every blessing. Not just material blessing, but spiritual blessing. All has come to us from God through Christ. Please stand and let's raise our voices in song.